Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley. I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon. We are both attorneys with the NFP Benefits Compliance Group, and we are here today to discuss issues that are relevant to you as it applies to employee group health plans. Often we speak about items that relate to health reform and what's going on on that front. Um, But then we take breaks occasionally just to talk about common themes that we see in questions that come up from our clients. And so today we're going to tackle one of those other themes, and it it does come up quite frequently, and it's the idea of common ownership and controlled groups. So Chase, let's start at the baseline. Uh, Give us a background on this concept. Yeah, this idea is actually a federal income taxation concept, uh, but it gets back to the good old Internal Revenue Code. Uh, which has a section, uh, section 414, that says if companies or businesses have sufficient common ownership, then the IRS will treat those companies as a single employer. Uh, There are a few ways that 414 says that you can have this common ownership, and it all comes back to relationships and ownership interests. So the easiest and most commonly understood way is called a parent-subsidiary relationship a parent company that wholly or 100% owns a subsidiary, that would be a parent sub-control group. Uh, 414 actually says you only need about 80% of ownership, so that 100% is a little bit over the top, but that's the more common situation you'll see. Uh, But if you hit that 80% threshold, uh, then the the parent and the subsidiary are in a control group. They have this parent sub-relationship. Another way that 414 says you can have common ownership is called a brother-sister relationship. They like the family theme here. Uh, This one gets into numbers and math, both of which I'm no good at. A quick diversion here, Suzanne. Um, I'm not good at math, but by mistake, I made my high school a math team. All right. I lucked out on the one exam they used to form the team. And then despite my appeals to get off the team, because I knew I was going to hurt the team by going to the state finals, um, I couldn't get off the team. So I did end up dragging down our math team's <laughs> final score. So a little known fact about my life. Uh, but getting back to numbers uh, and brother-sister groups, that looks at whether the same five or fewer individuals, and that can include a trust, own at least 80% of the companies involved. And then a second question is whether those same five or few individuals have at least 50% of what's called identical ownership in the companies. We don't have to go into the details. It's really helpful to map this out to be able to understand it. But just know there are two prongs there. And then it goes back to these same five individuals. If that's the case, that could potentially be a brother-sister control group. Now, there's one other way you can have common ownership. And that's under the so-called affiliated services group rules. Those are even more complicated and involve an analysis of the facts and circumstances. But the idea there is that if the companies are linked together through joint activity or a combination of common ownership and joint activity, uh, then they might be under common control. Joint activity is something like services being rendered back and forth between two or more entities or joining forces to render services to a third party. So definitely more of a legal analysis, but it's another way entities might be considered as under common control. And you may hear that term, affiliated services group. That's what it's talking about here. 
So this all seems a bit complicated. Do you find, uh, first of all, that companies are making these determinations on their own, or are they using CPAs or counsel, or how are these determinations being made? That is such a great question because we get that question, can you as our broker help us to make this determination? And really, employers should be going to outside counsel for this. That's not because we don't want to answer the question or be helpful. It's because they really needed its tax advice. It's a tax and legal determination. It matters for reasons beyond employee benefits. So there's employment tax issues. There's labor and and employment law issues involved when it comes to common ownership. So that's another reason that you should go back to uh, outside counsel to make that determination. Okay, so so how does this come up in the context of employee benefits? Those are the types of questions that we get in here. The concepts and rules come up quite often when it comes to benefit offerings. Um, and here are a few that we'll go through today. There are employer mandate considerations, benefit offerings. Uh, some employers like to vary benefit plan options or employer contribution levels based on different businesses. It also comes up with respect to mergers and acquisitions. We've seen an uptick in those type of questions this year. Um, and then the rules, finally, they, they come into play when it comes to MIWAs. So that's that's quite a bit to cover. But let's start, first of all, with uh, the employer mandate that always has an interest of our clients. Tell us how it impacts that. Yeah, it's a good place to start. And really, the idea of common ownership became much more prevalent, much more to the front of the stage when the ACA's employer mandate came into play. The mandate, as you know, requires large employers to offer affordable coverage to their full-time employees. And this took effect back in 2015. But a large employer is one with 50 or more employees, and that includes full-time equivalent employees. Um, so you can see the wheels spinning in employer minds already. What if I have 200 employees, but I break them up into five companies of 40 employees each? could I avoid the mandate's application? So I can do a little bit of math, Mm -hmm. not a lot, but that's a little bit. The IRS though says no dice on this one. We are going to apply, we being the IRS, are going to apply the common ownership rules. And so if there's a sufficient control among these five companies, we're gonna view them as a single employer. And that means you aggregate all the employees uh, for purposes of determining the 50 employee threshold. So even if you break this one company into five companies, you still have this common control. Therefore, you're viewed as a single employer. You still have a total of 200 employees. That means the employer mandate applies to you. So how, and tell us how it applies in other uh, areas of uh, employee benefits. Yeah. So other areas this comes up with, uh, one of the most prevalent we see is with regard to varying benefit plan options or employer contribution levels. Employers like to do that based on different business lines, companies, geographic locations. They even may want to get more specific uh, with job titles and occupation types. Uh, But this raises a few compliance issues, uh, such as ERISA with plan documentation and SPDs and the non-discrimination rules. Uh, For ERISA, ERISA, the same concepts apply. The plan itself is considered as offered by the employer, and that gets back to which entity is going to be considered the employer. In most situations, different businesses under common control can offer different plans to their own employees, but the plan documents and SPDs have to be very clear which employees are eligible for which plans. 
Um, so plan documents also spell out which entity is the plan sponsor and plan administrator. And that in turn dictates uh, which entity has to comply with Form 5500 and other uh, ERISA responsibilities. Um, another issue I just mentioned is non-discrimination. Um, this is where you vary contributions or benefits or plans to different groups of employees. Um, and that's not necessarily prohibited, but when you're running the non-discrimination test, you have to include the entire controlled group when you're figuring out who is a highly compensated employee and what are the benefits being offered. So you can't just get around the non-discrimination rules by setting up a separate company and offering them a very rich plan. And if that company were to have a majority of employees who are highly compensated, the non-discrimination rules would come in and say, hey, that's that's probably a discriminatory plan. Um, you've got to pull in the, the entirety of the control group when um, making that consideration. So that issue really needs to be addressed up front for employers when they are designing their plans. And it, it really does seem to impact it in so many different ways. But is there any way that it doesn't, uh, the, the uh, common ownerships do not come into play? Yeah, we just mentioned several where it does, but there are a few exceptions. And there's, there are two that I wanted to hit on today. First is another ACA rule. That's the Form W-2 reporting requirement. Um, there's an exception for employers who file fewer than 250 forms W-2. And when you're looking at that 250 number or threshold, the IRS says you don't have to aggregate numbers for commonly owned companies. They use this term aggregate, and it's the same idea as controlled or aggregation. You're looking at uh, the group. So if a parent company files 200 W-2s and a subsidiary files 70 W-2s, neither would have to report the cost of employer-sponsored coverage, um, even though combined they would be at 270. So your math was improving there. Yes. <laughs> uh, lots of employers do it anyway, since payroll companies and others have it down to a routine, but they're not te technically required to do it there. Um, the other item that there's an exception for here that we like to highlight is FMLA. Um, you don't look at common ownership when making counts under the FMLA so long as the entities operate independently. So if, if the entities have common ownership, but have different management, separate operations, that kind of separation, then the FMLA requirements would apply separately to the different businesses. You need a little bit more analysis there. Um, you have to look at whether the same management and operations would be acting things out, but um, definitely worth mentioning. You know, one of the other areas that we seem to get a lot of questions um, under this issue has to do with M&A or mergers and acquisitions. Can you speak on that a bit? Yes. Uh, merger, acquisition, or other business reorganization, this really illustrates some of the trickier concepts when it comes to common ownership. Um, usually, once one entity acquires another entity through a merger or acquisition, the transaction results in the buying entity having sufficient over ownership over the selling entity so that those two are under common control. Uh, but you may see different uh, agreements or transactions where that's not the case. Maybe they only buy 25% of the company or 40% of the company. Uh, but two of the biggest compliance issues we see in M&As are COBRA and non-discrimination testing. For COBRA, it's really figuring out which entity is responsible for offering COBRA. And that really depends on the type of transaction, whether it's a stock or an asset sale, and then whether the seller is continuing their group health plan after the transaction. So we won't go into the specifics. We're just trying to hit high level here. 
But usually if the seller maintains a plan, that plan is responsible for offering COBRA to those that lose their seller plan coverage as a result of the transaction. But oftentimes the seller is absorbed by the buyer or the seller ceases to offer any plan. And in that case, the buyer could be liable for COBRA. One note here, um, the two parties can negotiate COBRA liability. Uh, these are just the default rules that apply where that negotiation has not occurred. But that's really the biggest thing. Benefits aspects of the M&A are usually not discussed during the negotiation. It's usually not the most important point or part or cost associated with the uh, purchase or M&A. Um, so you may have some savvier businesses or M&A attorneys that bring this up as a negotiation point. But lots of times we'll see it a little bit down the road. Um, we'll see... You know, we forgot to figure out, we didn't discuss this, how does it work now? And then we have to go back and talk about some of these default COBRA rules. Right. And, you know, another area we see this come up in M&A, the questions arise around non-discrimination because we have varying benefits being offered. So can you speak to that? Right. We'll get questions all the time. Can we continue the benefits plan of the seller, even though it's different from the buyer's plan? How long do we have to merge those two plans or bring employees kind of onto the same plan? Um the non-discrimination rules do apply, as we mentioned earlier, across commonly held businesses. And so you have to consider all employees within the control group when you're figuring out how this will play out. Um, the rules on the health and medical uh, side here for non-discrimination are not as clear as the retirement side. There is a little bit of a grace period following a transaction that the retirement plan rules say you, you can take that time to figure things out. We don't have that on the health and welfare side. So it's it's more of a reasonable approach. If you um, have this situation, um, you might be able to rely on some of the retirement rules in the absence of guidance. On the other hand, the IRS could take a strict approach and say, hey, the transaction occurred. Um, these rules now apply. And so you'd have to immediately consider non-discrimination. But again, the, the idea is that if one plan is clearly favoring highly compensated um, that could now come into play now with a, with a transaction. So one of the other areas that we see this question come up is, again, after the fact, is, as you mentioned, maybe in an M&A situation, and it's an inadvertent control group issue. So they didn't even realize that that could be an issue at all, and now they're second-guessing it, and they're starting to peel back the onion and see that there could be this issue. Yeah, this can happen for sure. Um, sometimes employers may have a single plan for all of their related companies, and they may not know that they don't have sufficient common ownership to avoid being considered a MIWA. That's a multiple employer welfare arrangement. And that is an arrangement where a plan is covering the employees of two or more unrelated employers. Now, that's not necessarily prohibited. It just invites lots more compliance obligations uh, under ERISA at the federal level and also at the state level. And by unrelated, you uh, we still think of those companies as related, even if there's not common ownership. But in this context, unrelated really means doesn't rise to the level of common ownership. So there could be some right. similar owners, but just not enough common ownership to rise to that control group level. Exactly. Thanks for that. Um, so there's some specific rules on ownership levels and MIWAs and their filing obligations. The one we wanted to hit on today relates to Form M1, M as in MIWA or mother, uh, which is a federal form that a MIWA has to file with the DOL. It's like a simplified Form 5500. 
just telling the DOL that the MIWA is complying with many of the federal health laws. Uh, there's an exception to that filing requirement where the entities involved in the arrangements have some common ownership that rises to the level of 25%, but doesn't get higher than that. So there's an example in the Form M1 instructions that talks about a company that establishes a joint venture in which it has a 25% stock ownership interest, and then it transfers some of its employees to the joint venture and continues to cover the transferred employees under its group health plan. That would create a MIWA um, that's been established. 25% is not sufficient ownership to avoid MIWA status. As you were saying, it doesn't rise up to that 80%, which is where it usually has to be. Um, because uh, it can still take advantage of this filing exception because they're at 25%. So that's a very specific and nuanced example that pr probably doesn't come up a lot, but it's just worth mentioning some of the intricacies when you're talking about these common ownership and co control group rules. Yeah, I think um, you know that's really good because we often talk about being concerned about inadvertently creating a MIWA by having one plan covering multiple employers. And in this case, it would be ones in which they thought that there was enough ownership, but when you peeled back the onion again, there wasn't. And so the concern means, what's the impact of that? What's the impact of being in a MIWA? One of which is if you fail to do M1 filings. So that's nice to know that there's that exception. Right. So even if they've inadvertently created a MIWA, whereas there could be other implications at the state level, at the federal level, they still may be just fine. Right. They may fall into this exception and not have that obligation. But I think the state issue, state regulation is a, is a harder one to get out of. Some states heavily regulate MIWAs, so the MIWA may have inadvertently stepped into these state laws. They may not have uh, filed with the state government or funded the plan if it's self-insured in a way that is acceptable to the state. And so they can get in a lot of trouble with those state rules and not even realize they're in trouble until uh, this comes up somehow. Uh, one way that we see this come up is um, a plan covering independent contractors or, again, by covering employees of a corporation that maybe they thought they had enough common ownership and don't. So um, that can invite, again, not only these federal MIWA rules, which there may be an exception for, but also these, these state requirements that can be a little bit scarier. Yeah, that's true. States, uh, certainly states, because they have their own varying laws. So we see we see the laws differ in every state. And so if you do have a MIWA, if you've determined you have a MIWA because you don't rise to the level of common ownership, please seek outside counsel. Uh, if you have a self-insured plan to make sure that you are complying with all the state requirements. So Chase, that was a heavy subject, but you got through it very easily and seemed to make it all very clear. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And uh, as we like to say in our compliance world, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining us.